I'm Jess Fisher, and this is the best paper I ever wrote. Hello! Today I'm recording on January 3rd, 2021. Happy New Year. Today I'm joined by Nicole. Nicole, I read your last name on your papers, but Patrick didn't tell me your last name out loud. So what is your last name? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, it's Camella. I thought, okay, Camella. Yeah. Okay, I was right. Great. Um, Nicole, how would you like to self-identify? Yeah, uh, I go by Nicole. I use she and, she and her pronouns. Um, yeah. Awesome. That's great. So um, how do we know each other? Um, or I guess in this case, it would be like, how does Patrick know you? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I don't know you. <laughs> I know. So fun. Um, so Patrick and I went to <laughs> high school together um, and we both were involved in theater there. So. Oh, were you? Yeah. <laughs> so You did shows with Patrick in high school. I did. Yeah. What shows did you guys do together? Oh, my goodness. Um I guess the the first one we did together was Hairspray. <laughs> Who were you in Hairspray? I was, like, in the ensemble. That's so fun. Yeah, but he was, like, <laughs> one of the leads. I just forget the character's name. But it was a lot of fun, yeah. Seaweed? I think so, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. Um, for for those listening, and if, if those uh, listening don't know, Patrick is on the Best Paper Pod team, on the Hickory Playground team. Um extremely helpful in the like artistic and social media realm um I was just curious was Patrick a lot different in high school than he is now Ooh, big question um I would say yes and no um I think his like spirit is the same but I think like he's definitely changed like as a person Mm. in like a totally like amazing and great way oh in the most amazing way oh yeah I hope that didn't sound like I was like is Patrick, was Patrick always like this? Like in a bad <laughs> <Yeah>. way? <laughs> no, Patrick no. is my, um, my Gemini sibling. Mm. I, I adore Patrick so much. Um, okay. So do, 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 where did you grow up and where do you live now? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. For those who don't know where that is, <laughs> it's an hour <laughs> south of Boston. <laughs> um, oh, Huh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've never been to Providence, but I've been to Boston a bunch of times. Okay. It's like a smaller Boston. Very cute. Oh, really? Like, yeah. is the vibe similar to Boston? I would say so. <laughs> the same vibes. Um, um, and, and you currently live there now, right? I am currently living here now, too. That's nice. Mm-hmm. I, I, You were saying um, before we started recording, we were talking about you said that people don't really, like, leave Rhode Island a lot. Like, people stay... Yeah. Um, I grew up in New Jersey and it's got a very similar vibe Mm. there. Like you grow up and you stay in New Jersey, especially central Jersey. So um, I definitely get that mentality. So where did you go to school and what did you study in school? Uh, So I went to Brown, um, which is also in Providence. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I stayed in Rhode Island for college too. There's a trend. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I studied public health. Public health. Okay. So how would you define public health? Hmm. Um, public health can be a lot of things. I think in general, mm-hmm. it's just like uh, kind of like the study of maintaining and um, maintaining the health of a population and preventing illness in a population. Oh, so it's it, it's um, 
is was your focus in any certain direction like was your focus more on preventative healthcare or um yeah so um I would say my focus would be in like global health and mm. uh healthcare systems um and also like complementary and alternative health um those are like my big three main areas in undergrad what is complementary alternative health um so it's essentially like um any sort of health practice or healing that isn't considered Western medicine. Um, so this, oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's sick. Yeah. So I'm just, like, really interested in that and kind of integrated that into, my like, my public health education as well. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, are you working in any public health uh, way right now? Um, yeah. So I'm actually in medical school. <laughs> So, oh my gosh! Oh, yeah. where, where do you where are you going to medical school right now? I'm also at Brown. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also in Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah. Um. So it's my first year. So um, in the middle of my first year at med school. That's sick. What's mm-hmm. like your What's like your dream post med school? My dream post med school. Um, what are, What are your dreams and aspirations? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Definitely. Well, hopefully, be back in New York. Um. I spent some time oh, yeah. there in undergrad and took a gap year there. Um, so hopefully to land a residency um, back in the city. Is there a hospital in New York that you really want to work at? Um, not in particular. Um, I've luckily been able to like have some time in each of like the hospital systems there. Um, oh, really? And they're all pretty incredible. So that's so cool mm-hmm. okay so it's it's more like uh location based for you than necessarily department based right now <laughs> it's like right too now, early to right say now. yeah um sure. but i'm definitely thinking possibly like a primary care specialty so oh um, yeah something definitely so you down, started yeah. medical school during the pandemic yes so you've been doing it from home yes oh my gosh wow There's so like, were you like yeah. applying and and receiving offers or whatever like at beginning of the pandemic time or oh okay yeah that's were you like, already in medical school when um, the pandemic happened? yeah so I actually did um Brown's like eight-year program um mm-hmm. so you apply to medical school on your applying to undergrad um so I like had already known that um med school was on the horizon <laughs> oh um, yeah. I understand okay mm-hmm. so it's one of those like like accelerated sort of business doodles um <laughs> yeah yeah um really quick I always get paranoid about right now are you recording oh god yes I am incredible um <laughs> on like our second or third episode we we did the, recorded the entire thing and my lovely um interviewee was not recording the whole time and so we had to do the whole thing over. So great. I'm glad that we checked. Anyway. <laughs> okay. So um, what was the title of this essay? Yeah. So the title of this essay was Medicare for All versus Cuban Healthcare, Analyzing Healthcare Reform in the United States and Cuba Using an Intersectional Lens. That's sick. Okay. And normally I wouldn't ask this sort of question, but um, because of the way that politics are shifting, like mm-hmm. literally daily, what, what year did you write this? Yeah, so this was my spring semester of college. So this was spring of 2019. Oh, spring of 2019. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, because I, I, I was reading the essay and um, Kamala Harris came up and I was like, LOL. Like, she's she's the going to be VP real soon. And when you were writing this paper, 
you were just talking about her in like the not becoming VP way, <laughs> the job she had prior. I know. So I was like, that's cool to contextualize it that way. Um, what class was this for? Uh, so this was a class called Intersectionality and Health Inequities, and this was a public health seminar. Was it a required class, or did you choose to focus on this? Uh, it wasn't required, um, but I needed to take a public health seminar, and this was one of the options. Um, so I was really excited about this one. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think that's so cool. Like, to have a class on intersectionality in public health. Like, that that sounds totally fascinating. Um, so how did you choose this topic specifically? Uh, so this topic came about because I actually studied in Cuba, uh, my junior year. You uh, studied in Cuba? Yeah. <laughs> that must have been awesome. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. So I... Do they, yeah. What's the primary language in Cuba? Uh, Spanish. It is Spanish. Mm-hmm. Do you speak Spanish? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so, so did you yeah. learn Spanish or is, what, were you, have you always been able to speak Spanish? Um... So, like, I kind of learned growing up. My mom's from the Dominican Republic. Um, okay. Yes. Uh, so, but then, like, I kind of learned the language in more of an academic setting when I got to college and through oh, sure. the study abroad program, for sure. Mm-hmm. Wow. And how long were you in Cuba? For four months. For four months. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you went to Cuba, and then you were in this class, and then you got to choose a topic, and you were like, oh, I know about Cuba. Yes. That's sick. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is, this is my question of how you chose the topic. So what was the research like for this paper? Like, was there, um, uh, was it mostly like sitting in the library? Like, what, what did it look like on the day to day? So my professor actually suggested kind of this comparison um, mm. because at the time, so in like the spring of 2019, um, a lot of presidential candidates were coming about with their Hmm. plans for healthcare reform. Um, So we thought it would be really interesting to kind of compare the Cuban healthcare system, something that I know so deeply about and have done so much work and research on to kind of emergent policy that was being talked about in real time. Did Um, you know about those emerging policies before writing this paper? Uh, briefly, I guess just because of my general interest in public health, but a lot of, I think a lot of the major research for this paper was taking a deep dive into those policies for sure. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. So could you describe, I'm going to dive into the paper now. Um, could you describe the type of healthcare the U.S. government used prior to the Affordable Care Act? Um, and I, I, I'm going to talk about ACA. Like, I'm going to say ACA <laughs> when I talk about the Affordable Care Act. So just for the listeners, ACA means Affordable Care Act. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, that's a great question. It's so interesting because I think, like, growing up, like, when I first started thinking about public health and mm-hmm. how I started to get interested in it, like, the Affordable Care Act was, like, being written being passed so mm-hmm. I don't really have like a consciousness of what it was before as, in, as like an individual um but how I've been taught is that um essentially um you would get your health insurance through your employer um and if that didn't happen um you would pay out of pocket um or you would try to attain like an individual individual plan which wasn't like possible all of the time um and individuals over 65 
were on Medicare and eligible people were on Medicaid, um, which is for low income or other um, kind of patient populations who were eligible for that plan. Um, so before the, um, the Affordable Care Act, um, we also kind of referred to it as the ACA, um, there wasn't, there was like a huge gap in individuals who fell in the gap between uh, being eligible for Medicaid um, and being able to pay for individual plans from mm. insurance companies. That's super interesting to me because like, um, there, I, I like that you talk about the gap. I also really like that you talked about like your own consciousness of it because I think it's important to talk about like the research side of like, oh yeah, this is what I know about this thing, but also to talk about like how it you knew about it personally. I think that's great. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just gassing you up for a minute. Um, yeah, I think about things like like Medicaid and um, public assistance for those who for those who uh, need it, and I think about the gap between people who um, are eligible for that sort of aid and the people who can afford to pay for like a nice plan and stuff. And I think about like, for example, I was applying to food stamps sometimes sometime last year or two years ago, I think. And I was rejected from food stamps because I was making like $30 more a month than like I, you could on food stamps. And I was like, like it, there are so many people in the in-between is what I mean. There are so mm -hmm. many people lost. Um, and like, like you said, actually, let me pull up that thing. You, you talk about 44 million people in the U.S. lacked health insurance in 2013, which was, I believe that was prior to Obamacare. Or, it was. So... Yeah, and that, like, ACA Obamacare, like, helped young people, black and Hispanic people, and those with the lowest income the most. Um, but 10.7% of the population still remains uninsured. So it's cool that, like, like ACA has done a lot of cool things, especially for um, those who have needed it. Young people, black people, Hispanic people, um, and uh, lower income people. But, I mean, there's still a ton of gaps, and that's what we talk about. That's why healthcare is still such a hot topic. And I think it's really prominent in the American psyche. Like, there's so much media made about the struggles of people having to pay healthcare bills. Um, and uh, I, I, so I'm a big fan of this essay, not only because it talks about very important subjects that are very relevant, but also it talks about um, why the why of why Americans are against socialized medicine. Like, uh, we'll get into it later, but like the American values of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and why that's preventing us from like <laughs> looking at healthcare in a, in a different way that will benefit way more people. Um, so anyway, totally asking you up for a little bit <laughs> before I ask some more questions. Very sweet. Um, <laughs> so um, who and what is trying to challenge the affordable care act now? Okay. Yeah. Um, so I would say, uh, the Republican Party and uh, yeah. the Trump administration um, and kind of any conservative conservative uh, politicians who fall under that as well. So um, when the Affordable Care Act was instated, like how did that change health care and why do you think Republicans were against that when that happened? Yeah, so the Affordable Care Act was one of like the largest health care reforms since 1965 when Medicare and Medicaid were established. Um, so while right now we may feel like it didn't do enough in the moment, it did so much, um, mm -hmm. for so many people. Um, 
And it was so interesting because the proposed, like the original kind of legislation had to be pared down so, so much over the years that the Obama administration had written it and tried to get it through um, because of the Republican Party um, trying to continually undermine it and not let it pass. Um, so I think, especially in the kind of the healthcare research, public health field, there's kind of the sense that like the Affordable Care Act has been through so much struggle to even like live <laughs> and survive. Um, I love the personification of, yeah. of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely how it's been discussed. And um, it's so interesting um, in that way. So there was like, in, in its original version, it, it would have helped a lot more people? Yes. Um, so, I mean, I don't remember too many of the specifics. Sure, but, sure. Yeah, but it's, like, kind of nitty-gritty, like, how the marketplaces would operate. Mm-hmm. Um, there was kind of this whole discussion around the mandate, which originally was in place and then was disputed, etc. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's, like, all these, like, kind of little uh, things that got kind of got chipped away as the legislation was being written and passed and eventually implemented as we see it today yeah that's that's funny about the chipping away i I like that visualization because we're seeing that now with you know the freaking uh checks Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how um they have to go back and forth and and chip away at each other's stuff and like when i was young i didn't maybe it was because i was young or because there was I, i don't know why but um when uh as I've gotten older, and especially with the Affordable Care Act, and I've I've been, you learn more and more about how much chipping away has to be done, and how nobody ends up getting what they want through the compromise. Like how how nobody's happy, and that more people are fucked over. Yeah, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase. That's a huge like policy question for sure. Yeah. So when did healthcare change in Cuba? Yeah. So. That has a fantastic history. That let me just say right now, I can't do it justice. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I'm not a historian in any sense. Um, but so essentially, in 1959, um, the Communist Party uh, took power of uh, Cuba, and this is the Cuban Revolution of 1959 under Fidel Castro. Um, and so, under that revolution, uh, the government was completely changed from uh the previous administration to a communist government and that included um, a government-run healthcare system um so it was a super pivotal moment um because even with like the triumph of the communist party like health was one of like the main forefront um policy initiatives um at that time and so I wouldn't say it immediately changed within that year, um, but definitely um, very quickly, I would say, at least by um, the 60s, there was, um, like, transformative change in terms of their healthcare system. Hmm. That's really cool. Like, I I guess it's just, it it could be just because it's not part of my consciousness or because I'm not in the healthcare field, but, like, I've never, like, associated Fidel Castro and, like, healthcare. (laughs) Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect most people to. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's how I see it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was 
it was kind of incredible. Um, and I, yeah, I would like to like kind of contextualize this and that like sure. uh, Latin America and Caribbean in the Caribbean region, uh, there hasn't like there's. I guess in their colonial history, there's been lots of revolutions and their fight for independence. Um, but particularly in the like the 20th century, that was like, a huge moment for that region um, to mm. gain kind of independence from these imperial forces in that time. Um, and so I, I think within that like kind of very brief <laughs> colon- like colonization aspect. Uh, I think the revolution is also a really important marker for uh, like independence, especially in like a region of islands and small nations. So um, you think that that um, that revolution had a big effect on on other uh, surrounding Caribbean countries, like and and their attitudes toward their imperialism, or, or... Um, you know, I can't really speak to that, um, but I think. Uh, how I see it, I think in this paper or kind of how I explore it is that other countries around Cuba did not have the same power to change their healthcare system um, due to neoliberal policy structures um, mm-hmm. that prevented them, their governments from doing so. Um, so I think it's just like good to like highlight that. Cuba was able to do so because of a revolution, um, but other other countries around them. Oh, um, I'm understanding. Mm-hmm. Oh, because of the revolution, we were able to make those changes. I see. Yeah, exactly. It's sorry. It's like kind of. It's so complex. Not easy to like discuss within such few minutes. Um, right, right. But I think like when you look at Cuba specifically, like their health outcomes do not match at all their counterparts in the region, um, mm-hmm. and like the their reform is part of that right right so what was there was there a strong need for healthcare change to, um prior to the revolution like was there a really really high infant mortality rate was there like uh, pandemic disease things like that yeah so there wasn't like a structure at all essentially mm-hmm. like if you had money you got care um and that's kind of how it was throughout the world <laughs> before major um, changes were made in government in regards to healthcare. Um, so that's what was happening before too. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, the next part in your essay, you start to talk about intersectionality, and I'm really glad that you define it because um, I sort of think that the word is used and overused, like as a virtue signal, a little bit. Um, like when it comes to like the internet and feminism and stuff. Like, intersectionality is a fantastic word when people, like, know how to use it and, like, know how to utilize it instead of just using the word to sound like, I'm a good person. Um, So you define intersectionality in the paper. How would you, in your own words, define it? Yeah. Um, So I see intersectionality as um, a lens to kind of um, look at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, any sort of any other identifier within an individual and seeing how that plays out within systematic um, oppression. And how... How long has the... Oh, go ahead. Finish no, that's it. That was, thank you for cutting me <laughs> off. <'cause laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I was going to say, um, how long has that word been like in your consciousness? Um, I would say since I started college. 
Yeah, because I, I like kind of when I was reading your paper, I'm like, yeah, that is when it was in your consciousness. Shut up, Jess. But like, I mean, <laughs> that when I was reading it, I, I was like, oh, I think that I learned the word intersectionality like freshman year of college. Which yeah, is it's interesting because I think it's been used for much longer, but um, and it feels so much part of like the 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 consciousness of our generation. But um, it's such an important word and such an important focus. For sure. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Yes, let's take a moment for that. Um, so why is intersectionality important in examining healthcare services? Yeah, um, it almost feels like a jump to even just hear like that question. Um, but uh, I think it's so important. I think like, mm-hmm. you know, not to like theorize it. I think like any, um, like any individual, por- like, any individual person seeking care, medical care specifically, you're gonna have to look at their identities and how they interconnect um, and how that's gonna impact how one, how they get care, how it's delivered. Um, their access to care, um, what happens after they get care, are they going to be able to access their meds, are they going to be able to afford it, Um, it, what's inhibiting them from following a plan of care. Um, So I think like that point of delivery, you can totally see this lens of intersectionality play out. Yeah, yeah, that just, that just reminded me, actually, I was listening to I think it was a Radiolab episode, and it was about um, Dr. Fauci and his work on the AIDS crisis. And love, that, um, love that. <laughs> love that. <laughs> Loving that. Yeah, because it was talking about... Cause, so Dr. Fauci had the same exact job that he has now during the AIDS crisis. And when... Um, he, he was pretty much on the forefront of AIDS research and everything, which a lot of people were telling him not to do, you know, because if ho- hopefully the listeners know about, like, the problems with AIDS research and, and how it was, you know, should have been uh, way more looked at, but there was other systems at play to prevent them from helping people because they were gay. And um, so I, it was interesting because they, a lot of the gay community did not like Dr. Fauci because in the clinical trials and everything, they were using white gay men, white cis gay men. And a, a lot of ACT UP, the, the New York organization, was like, you can't just do that. Like, mm-hmm. you can't just say, like, this is a gay disease. This is also, like, you have to look at how um, it affects black people, how it affects trans people, how it affects Hispanic people. Um, and that's interesting that that was, uh, that was so long ago. And that's also um, one of the essential times to look at intersectional- intersectionality. Has it come up in, in recent research and everything? Um the um looking at things intersection in wow i keep saying the freaking word in an intersectional <laughs> lens um has that come up in like recent healthcare controversy does that make any sense at all <laughs> um i think like i think your example of hiv um mm. is kind of the perfect um way to discuss intersectionality and uh health and like how controversial that can be um, because I think it's really easy to kind of treat an individual for whatever disease they have, but like you explained, like you can't do that <laughs> all the time. <laughs> like there's so many important things you have to consider, um, like such as individuals, uh, how they identify or, um, and so, yeah, I, I think some, I think sometimes 
it can be hard to do that. Um, I think that's kind of where the tension lies. Um, mm-hmm. Or some people may like still feel un- like uncomfortable bringing those things up. Um, but you know, it's been proven that those are really necessary for like high quality care. So even like like the conversation of it is too uncomfortable to to bring up for some people. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Like especially as a med student this is like such a hot topic. <laughs> yeah, um, like we started off our year, you know, the first week of med school included these topics of race um, in medicine and how that plays out. Um, and I think in my, like our generation, that's, it's being talked about all the time. Um, but I think it's like interesting to hear like my mentors and physicians I encounter kind of talk about how like, wow, like you guys are talking about it you are bringing it up in discussions um you're seeing this in your patients this was like never allowed or like that some people were too uncomfortable to talk about these things and kind of like appreciating that um there is stride um in these areas has there been like so so when you're just you have like discussions about the importance of these things in classrooms has it ever happened in a classroom where somebody said something like really off color like, ha- have there been, like, controversial discussions in classrooms about intersectionality? You know, not in my personal experience. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> which is, like, nice great. Yeah, because I would, <laughs> yeah, I would be definitely want someone to speak up about it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think um, I'm, like, very fortunate to be at an institution that uh, prioritizes these conversations um, but I know kind of anecdotally that these things don't really happen at other places. Um, so. Well, that's good. I'm glad, I'm glad you're in a place that's good like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's nice. Um, so, um, in your opinion, is healthcare an essential human right? Absolutely. I just wanted to like say oh, that. No. Yeah. Cause like, yeah, yeah let's. Let's just quickly put that in the air. Let's put that in the space, in the listening space. Like, yeah, okay. Groovy, groovy. Um, great. So we then, then you go into your essay to talk about um, different options of socialized medicine and um, the U.S.'s history of um, certain pr- ways of promoting it and certain ways of putting it down. Um, you mentioned that socialized medicine is improbable due to, quote-unquote, uh, competing market interests. Would you mind explaining what you mean by competing market interests? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and when I was looking at this paper, I was, like, improbable. Because I think that has definitely changed within the year, but we can also discuss that. Um, but, yeah, competing market oh, okay. interests. Yeah, I think I think there's more hope than when I wrote this paper, is what I should say. Right, right. For the recent election? Yeah, uh, yeah, and kind of, like, this progressive wave of um, politicians coming through. Well, hope is nice. That's yeah. good. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so these like competing market interests, I, essentially what I just meant was kind of the healthcare industry. So what that means is pharmaceuticals, insurance companies, um, they have huge, huge profits and stakes um, in how healthcare is run in the country. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's kind of what I was getting I, at. Yeah, I mean, like one of my friends, um, like I, I have had many friends like set up GoFundMe's for medical bills and um, personally like I just switched insurances because of um, some job changes in my parents and I'm having to uh, pay a like $100 copay on therapy when I used to be able to go for free and like yeah. um, 
I also think about um, when you talked about pharmaceutical companies. Um, I personally was um, in a sexual harassment training video for um, John Bleepus for Novartis. Um, and I went to their main campus and it looked like a secret society. Like it was like, it looked like a college campus, but like really, really beautiful and brand new. And I, you go up and then like, you have to get in like a little bus to bring you to different areas of the campus of this pharmaceutical company. And all the buildings had this beautiful architecture. And I was like, if the Illuminati exists, it's this. I just like couldn't believe the opulence of this pharmaceutical company. I was like, have you no shame that people are making GoFundMes and stuff? And here I am. And it was the best paying acting job I've had. Um, like, yeah. And, and my, my mom was also a pharmaceutical sales rep. So like, I, I'm pretty familiar with like the pharmaceutical companies, like how they um, just like the opulence of them. Like it's almost in your face with how much money they have and can throw around and they would, you know, not be making nearly as much money with socialized medicine. And there's that idea of the free market. And, um, a lot of people don't want to <laughs> get rid of that in any way. Um, wow. That's so, so interesting that I'm sorry that you were, no, no, please. Yeah, no, I, didn't, I, mean, I like, didn't give you the opportunity to speak after that. I was just going to go right back in. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I mean like, like the fact that you like were able to kind of witness, like a company campus like that I think it's I think it's so fascinating and telling well the, the <laughs> other thing is that like people aren't allowed in right it's like a secret that they have these campuses that are just big and beautiful like you're not supposed to know like it felt like I had to go through all these different clearances like it's it's the only reason I got to go on is because I was an employee for the day and uh, I had to sign all these freaking you know NDAs I took a picture of one of the buildings they made me delete it off my phone and I'm like scary wow. <laughs> yeah that is kind of scary huh well thank you for sharing that that's like something I didn't know so <laughs> oh well there you go yeah big pharma um so we we talk about then then you go into um American health insurance so I think we'll go back into um American mentality and the free market and stuff and you talk about before ACA, uh, more than 44 million people in the U.S. lacked health insurance. And um, you statistically look at how ACA helped young people, black and Hispanic people, as we said before. And uh, the you, you also said that the Kaiser Family Foundation found that people of color are at a higher risk of being uninsured, as Hispanic is at 19%, black people is at 11%, and that's significantly higher than white people. Um, so, and I, I like that you also call ACA... Um, a launching platform for more progressive healthcare plans that it's like, yeah, we're here. We're here. And we've had, we've had, <laughs> I keep saying it. It's just funny that we we're here. We've had ACA for a while and um, we can use that as a launching pad for, for bigger and better things. Um, you go on to say the struggle for more robust and comprehensive policies is rooted in the privatized funding and organization of healthcare. Um, so what have you learned about privatized funding of healthcare? Yeah, so I think a good way to look at that is, like, the... So, like you said, kind of the ACA being, like, a platform for more progressive mm -hmm. um, plans. Um, I think... So, the pushback to that um, 
has come from this idea that um the that there would be no need for insurance companies um or there would be a high regulation of pharmaceuticals um so i think so there's also like this um so the idea of medicare for all um led by bernie sanders um is that there would be like a single payer so that just means that um instead of insurance companies paying um for your health insurance you would have um, one way or the government um, to pay insurance companies for claims. Um, but that would get rid of a lot of, a lot of, lot of um, plans. And so like, what does that mean for these insurance companies? That's, they don't want to do that. And so I think that's kind of where the privatized dollars, um, the question comes from. I'm so glad that you mentioned single payer because I've heard Bernie, I love Bernie Sanders. I'm obsessed with him. And you, he says that phrase all the time, and I've always just like nodded at the TV, being like, "I know what that means." Thank you so much for describing it in yeah. simple terms. <laughs> when I heard single payer, I was just like, "Oh, like one person pays." I don't know, like. Well, that's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah, I know. It, it it sounds really complicated, um, but I assure you, it's not at all. <laughs> right? No, that makes a ton of sense. Um, so you you go on to explain a couple of different healthcare plans. Um, could you explain the difference between Medicare for all, Medicare for America, and Medicare buy-in plans? And do you know if any of these um, proposals these these are just proposals in in uh, the Senate, I believe. Um, but do you know if any of these have changed since you wrote this paper? Yeah, I definitely updated myself on the current landscape of healthcare reform because it's been. I mean, a year and a half is a lot for healthcare. A year and a half is a yeah. lot for, for <laughs> politics, yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, so briefly, Medicare for All is, is just uh, kind of saying we're going to take Medicare, which is already a, a known established government program um, that provides medical care for individuals 65 and up, and we're going to expand that to all individuals in the United States. Um so all citizens of the United States. Correct. Okay, That's cool. a great, thank you for bringing that up because I think a lot, um, I bring up a lot in the paper specifically that undocumented or those without residential status in the United States are, will not be covered um, by most healthcare reform um, proposals. Um, right. And that also makes me think about like, like Barack Obama's like really awful um, immigration policies and stuff like that and how that you could look at that as like a similar mentality. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that you clarified that. I didn't I didn't mean to correct you as you were speaking. Oh. I was I was trying to clarify. <laughs> I wasn't trying to correct. <laughs> I no, I no, I appreciate that. Yeah. And I think like like we were discussing before, like it's a perfect it was it's another example of an intersectional lens. Right. So like. Right. The, right. Like, do you have citizenship? another identifier and like how that plays out in, mm-hmm. in medicine. Uh, yeah. So I think, yeah, Medicare for all pretty simple. Um, like there's already kind of a way to pay, to deliver care, that sort of thing. Um, and that hasn't really changed too much. Um, it's kind of been uplifted by the progressive movement in 2020. Um, and then at the time there was also another plan for Medicare for America. Um, and this it was similar to Medicare for all, but it would allow for large or certain employers to expand their ability to 
provide health insurance to their employees. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Medicare buy-in plans. So instead, so compared to Medicare for All, so instead of expanding Medicare to all citizens, um, you the buy-in plans, you would have the ability to buy into Medicare instead um, while b- keeping the uh, private insurer uh, plans at the same time. So it sounds like we're really trying to protect the private insurers. Yes. When, when we're moving farther and farther away from Medicare for all, it seems like they're they're just trying to find ways to make the American public like safer in that way, but also protect the industry, which it sounds like, I don't know, that sounds like a tough sell to try to try to make both parties okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's super hard because I think there's also this notion that like people don't want to lose their current health care. That's what they're comfortable with. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think there's like all these like narratives and themes that, you know, as a nation, we have to <laughs> kind of think about like these oh, large yeah. existential things. Um, so, yeah, I think like in terms of reform within like the public health field, there's kind of like this. OK, we're going to do big change. Medicare for all. Just change it straight up. But then there's also kind of this idea of like in- incremental change. Um, and so that's kind of where they see like Medicare buy-ins take a role. So, you know, the goal is to have Medicare for all, but if we can't do that due to political constraints and not being able to pass legislation, what can we do? Um, Mm. So we can create a public option. So that's Biden's kind of plan that he presented during um, the elections. And I don't think one he has steered away from, um, but that would be kind of like an incremental step towards, um, improving coverage for citizens in the u.s oh okay so he's he's more on the buy-in side yeah so he proposed like a public option yes yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) buy-in okay because i remember like in the debates like it came up a bunch where um the president would like accuse biden of like um of of being on the side of socialized medicine and then therefore like call him a radical antifa socialist you know yeah um but like that's he so biden is not for medicare for all no oh okay i don't know i don't know no yeah i mean it's great you know to point out um and also like i don't know how many people are aware of this but like the u.s does have socialized medicine um through the Veterans Affairs Department, which provides mm-hmm. health care. Um, and also kind of, it's, you know, it's kind of similar to Medicare and Medicaid. Um, so the delivery systems are there. Um, it's just but kind of taboo. that's only for veterans, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it covers veterans. Um, but yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. My mom's, my mom's a war vet. I mean, I keep talking about my mom. And I'm like, yeah, she was a pharmaceutical sales rep. She's a war vet. Um, but yeah, she's, she's a war vet. And so she's gotten so much help from the VA. And there's... Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about intersectionality, and there's also um, the specific needs of veterans. They they have very different needs from a lot of the other population of like having trouble accepting um, mental health care and mental health care being so important for veterans. There are very specific veteran um, like uh, um, health problems like um, IBS and stress related and um, especially chemical related things like that. So um, I'm glad you brought up the VA. <laughs> The VA yeah. is important. Well, it shows and it's is possible. Is anybody trying to challenge yeah. 
Yeah, it shows that it's possible. Is anybody trying to challenge the VA or anything, or is that just? Oh no, that's no, like sacred is... American. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> we can't touch. Yeah, that's so true. Like, it's so that's so funny about um, how the, there's the right narrative of respect the troops and all that, and like, you know, protecting the VA, and yet like the VA is socialized medicine, and, and Americans are so afraid of it. That's funny. I've never thought of that. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting stuff. I know. <laughs> so, what is with Americans and the necessity of choice? Like, it seems like. As I'm reading your paper, it's it seems like Americans are so afraid of 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 losing the right to choose uh, their their the right to choose. That's funny when we talk about healthcare and that that buzz phrase. Um, choose their healthcare plans and choose whether or not they want to go with Medicare, Medicaid. You know, it's it's what like it's it's almost like this stubbornness that feels uniquely American. And then you also talked about. They're, they're a fear of change, which I didn't even consider as well, which I feel is also very American. Did you learn a lot about that when you were doing your research? Or while you were doing your research, how did it feel when you were sitting there reading about all these policies and how the thing that is preventing them is a lot of just like Americans being stubborn? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm going too far in saying, saying that. No, I think that brings up like a lot of important points. I mean, honestly, like, at that point, I just felt frustrated. Um, yeah. Because I think, you know, we hear all of these tragic stories, people not being able to pay. I mean, in our own personal lives, we all know or have experienced this, um, like having to pay like exorbitant amounts for medical care or having difficulty getting care or mm-hmm. um, getting good care. Um, like I, even though I have... I am so fortunate to say that I have insurance under my parents. Like, even then, I've had to kind of advocate and demand good health care. Um, and totally. I don't think anyone should have to do that. Um, I don't know. I think it's such a frustrating thing to, like, see so many, so many people um, vote against um, this essential policy that would make the, them and their communities healthier. Well, you also talk about... Oh, what were you going to say? Sorry. No, I mean, I think that's, like, the ultimate frustration. You were talking about, like, lobbyists and everything and how these politicians are getting, like, paid off and stuff. And that's even more frustrating that it's, like, politicians are getting money to prevent, um, like, (laughs) the well-being of Americans. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I kind of, like, touch upon this. Like, it's not only in terms of, like, healthcare reform. Like, we know that... Like, medical care only accounts for 10% of an individual's health. Mm. So, <laughs> in, in that aspect, um, depending on where someone lives, um, yeah. their income level, race, um, gender, you know, that's going to impact their health. And unfortunately, like, lobbyists play a large role in all of these, like, arenas of our society. Um, right, so. right. It's not just health. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Environment. There's a whole slew of other things. Environment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. Which also, I mean, that also contributes to health too. I mean, mm-hmm. it all goes round and round. Um, I love that you discuss other programs that are indisputably connected to health, like uh, social welfare, education, criminal justice, and how 
changes in healthcare necessitate changes in those programs as well. Like if, if you want people to not get sick as much, you gotta, you know, make sure that they have um, good education, social welfare, um, medical education, primary care, electronic medical records. Um, what, so I, I, what's the exact question that I'm trying to ask with this? Maybe I'm just trying to bring it up as a, as yeah. a concept, the surrounding things that have to be examined when we're examining changes in healthcare. Yeah, I think that's what, like, brought me towards, like, public health as, like, a field in general, Hmm. because it's, like, you know, how can you prescribe someone a medication that needs to be refrigerated if they don't have a refrigerator? Absolutely. No, (laughs) it's so true. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, like, that's the kind of legal idea. Um, Like, you can only do so much with biomedical science, um, and the rest of it is dependent on like an individual's well-being and what they have around them yeah and I I guess it's also interesting to look at not only just like uh financial need and how that affects people's um healthcare abilities and abilities to you know take medicine as prescribed get to the hospital be transport you know transportation shit like that but also like um social um social and psychological based on culture and individual community as well uh did you learn anything about that kind of stuff too yeah for sure I mean I think that's you know something that's continually brought up especially in my training right now like you have to look at the whole person um taking a history you have to ask about um if they have any food insecurity where they live social support emotional well-being that sort of thing um And I think also what I kind of always see this as is that I kind of saw this being incorporated in the Cuban healthcare system. So Mm. they didn't see like medical care as a separate issue. Um, They saw housing, education, um, sanitation as hand in hand with health. Um, And so it's it's kind of this like biopsychosocial model um, that they built their systems upon um and that i hope we can somehow integrate (laughs) i love i love the phrase biopsychosocial i I was i was a child psych minor and it was like tattoo biopsychosocial to my body like (laughs) that just means that like that any 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 given um disorder person any like most most things that are organic or like human have are affected by biological surroundings so like what your genetic makeup is when you're born uh your psychological makeup so that could be um how you raise things and well social would be more the environment you live in or social it's they all mix together basically your your environment your chemicals your makeup and um how you're raised and everything you have to examine all of the things to give good care um and i that's that's cool that's cool so you so Cuba seems like the ideal in your paper in this way. Um, you go into that it addresses social determinants of health as part of their community-based primary healthcare system, as you were saying, rather than consider it a separate issue, education, health literacy, pesticide regulation. I thought that was super duper interesting. And essential food rationing, also super duper interesting to me. What are some of the shortcomings that, that the Cuban healthcare system has, if any? If <laughs> Yeah, um, that's a great question. I mean, like, I think... I don't even know if we've mentioned this, but like I think Cuba is considered um, one of like the best healthcare systems in the world. Mm-hmm. 
because of their government-run system. Um, I think, you know, it's hard to say. Um, I think because of the U.S. embargo, they are so restricted um, in, like, material things, like, such as supplies, um, that it's, like, yeah, it's, like, it becomes really hard to kind of um, maintain it. I will say the system is pretty resilient, so um, since its creation, um, not too much has changed, and they haven't needed to change too much about it, but I think, like, um, I think stuff we take for granted here, like, just having, like, the necessities, like, needles, um, uh, just kind of, like, all of these, like, very small medical, uh, supplies. So trouble have- getting that shit? Yeah, so, um, the U.S. embargo, um, was instituted on Cuba because of their socialist, communist, uh, affiliation. Um, and so that does, that not only stops u.s trade with cuba but it also stops trade um with u.s allies um and because oh, of i didn't i'm stupid i didn't know oh, no. <laughs> yeah i mean it's like not something everyone knows unfortunately um but yeah because of the u.s like because of america's position on a global scale um and their international policy they have so much power and sway and who gets to trade with whoever nations and that includes cuba with this embargo uh oh my god it's just funny how like i this is just a a quick sidebar that like this podcast i learned so much and every single episode i learn a lot but i realize how little i know about the universe and the world like i feel like i should know that and i'm glad that i do now but holy shit anyway so because of that they they don't have that they sometimes lack some resources yeah for sure wow yeah i mean it's still a low-income country um so despite their yeah so despite their like incredible um system of healthcare, they still kind of face issues uh that other low-income countries face such as material shortages Hmm. um their inconstant like economic issues um stuff like that and in cuba how do they um do they handle LGBTQ health in, like, a good or bad way? You, you brought it up, um, and, like, mm-hmm. trans people as well. Is there anything specifically in Cuba as far as, like, culturally that is anti-LGBTQ? Yeah, that's a really interesting part of Cuban society. Um, it was pretty taboo, um, just, like, the LGBTQ community and being queer or gay um, and being out in Cuba. And I think it's still an issue. Like we can see, we see Cuban um, asylum seekers in the U S who are gay or queer seeking asylum in the, um, today. So it's mm. definitely still um, a human rights issue. Um, when, while I was down there, there was like a lot of movement um, and you kind of knew like where like safer spots were for um, out people Um and I'm sure that plays on like a healthcare level, um, but there isn't like too much about that intersection in at least academia in that sense. Well, yeah, but it, it, I mean, I think it's cool that you got to experience that. Like you went to Cuba and you were able to see that sort of thing. Yeah. Did you, were you studying there alone? Were you there with any queer friends that felt like safe or unsafe or anything like that? 
Um, yeah, I can't. Yeah, it was like a pretty like there were twenty students of us. Um, I don't. I mean, we've had like we had a lot of conversations about it, like as a mm-hmm. just like twenty somethings <laughs> living abroad in Cuba. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like you know, one of our uh, coordinators was openly queer with her um, Cuban partner, and so I think oh. definitely seeing that was amazing and seeing how they navigated that society and um, travel and such. Um, right. Yeah. Cause I'm glad that you bring up that there's not a lot of talk about it in, in academia, but that, that also just shows that like experience is also an extremely valuable tool and uh, uh, personal identity going to places. Yeah. That's very, I like that, that you brought that up. Um, I, I, my next question is what is a post-racial society and I don't really I need to find in your paper where you say that because it's like you can't just like ask that question <laughs> you can't just be like hey Nicole what is a post-racial society okay so this is what you say in your paper um, okay living in a post-racial society creates a complex challenge in addressing racism and health disparities that are, are not acknowledged by the government okay so that's how you use it in context so in in terms of your paper what what do you mean by a post-racial society Yeah, so I think I was specifically talking about Cuba in that sense, Mm -hmm. um, because uh, upon, like, the uh, revolution, um, it it sought to uh, create equality between all peoples. And because of that, um, there's kind of this idea that now racism is no longer an issue. Oh, Mm-hmm. And like sexism and kind of all of these um, systems of oppression. It's fixed. That, yeah. <laughs> we Which did like, it. We did yeah. it, Joe. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, like picture that for like 50 plus years. That's not exactly how it plays out ever. <laughs> right. Um, because racism is pervasive uh, no matter kind of what system is in place um so yeah it's 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 kind of um I kind of explore it in the sense that like Cuba as a communist country trying to survive in this modern age uh needs to rely on uh an economic source of tourism essentially Mm. um and so while I was down there what I kind of saw and kind of what was in discussion a lot was that Cubans who work in tourism um, are gaining a lot more resources, um, higher incomes, um, but are most often um, white. And so, um, wow. And so like, what is, and so then I I analyze that (laughs) in a healthcare sense, but I think there's also just a general sense, like in a social sense. Yeah. Right. That creates, um, a lot of things and I think even aside from gap yes the wealth gap I think aside from class I think in general like racism will persist um no matter what unfortunately um and so I kind of saw that with um how certain people were treated either by police or um other individuals Um, did you experience any racism in Cuba yeah, I mean, even myself, like, depending on who I was with, <laughs> was a huge determinant about, like, how I was treated. Oh, really? Uh, like, oh, for who sure. Who surrounded by? Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. How so? 
I mean, like, I think, like, if I was with, like, other white students in my program, I'd be, like, assigned, you know, foreign student traveling in Cuba. Um, but if I was, like, alone, I could easily pass as someone who may be from the region or Cuban. Um, right. And I think, like, in that sense, that kind of exists in most Latin American and Caribbean countries. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of this, like, idea of racism and colorism in society and how that plays out um so i don't think it's left cuba but i think it's interesting to see the dialogue there because they consider themselves post-racial so thinking um you know we've solved this um through equity (laughs) but you know it's yeah it's so hard to discuss um but that's kind of how i saw it and experienced it so the u.s considers itself post-racial Mm, I wouldn't say so. I okay. Yeah, I think like (laughs) I'm just trying to understand the phrase a little bit. Oh yeah, I think like with Obama, I think there was a lot of um, Mm. uh, kind of uh, sentiment of post-racialness. Like we elected a black president. Okay, like now we can put this race issue to bed. Um, But like. You know that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, <that's not. laughs> uh, yeah. So um, yeah. So I think guess that term can be used in a lot of different ways. Um, but yeah, I I'm glad that you were able to qu- quantify uh, the difference between the American and Cuban healthcare systems. Although it's like really sad, but you compare infant mortality rates and pregnancy related deaths in the U.S. to Cuba. Um, you say that in the U.S., black women of all incomes and backgrounds die from preventable pregnancy-related complications at three to four times the rate of non-Hispanic white women, and the infant mortality rate for black infants is twice of that of infants born to non-Hispanic white women. The U.S. has the highest maternal and infant mortality rate um, among comparable, comparable developed countries, which it's just, I mean, that's evidence of that we are clearly not in a post-racial society, and that's also evidence to why we need to examine things in an intersectional way. Um, not only are they exactly. women, not only are they pregnant, but they're also black and how, how their health care um, should be examined in a different way. So um, you also talk about uh, primary care and the concept of weathering when it comes to, um, to uh, I think, black women in health care. Could you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, of course. Um, like the importance of primary care. Yeah, I mean, um, in general, like primary care is needed to prevent chronic illness um right. to stop worsening disease um and also establish like a point of care um that is continuous and dependable um in terms of weathering it's um this biological phenomenon essentially or rather concrete <laughs> idea that of <laughs> uh, like that constant stress changes how the body functions and and for the worse um and so uh we see this play out in marginalized communities um and in particular the case study i was looking at um in black maternal mortality um so yeah i think like all of these impacts you know not having access to care um uh, and experiencing racism and like what that means for maternal and infant mortality is huge Mm. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, so th- then you're able to... So it's like, we're, we're looking at that the U.S. has the highest maternal infant mortality rate among comparable developed countries. And it's like, that's 
bonkers and we pride ourselves on being like one of the best countries period or the best country period and especially economics and and race and melting pot and all that bullshit um and so i'm glad that you you mentioned that because it just shows that the the change is essential that the the change is absolutely necessary we we cannot we do not have a good healthcare system because of these rates um so it it sounds it sounds simple but it's almost like that's the evidence you need like you you sort of need evidence <laughs> and i think that's very good evidence for it yeah and it's hard cuz we have all this evidence you know that's just like one point of so many devastating so statistics many. yeah um yeah and so yeah i mean it's it's interesting because yeah, like we might have like the highest medical technolo- technological advances mm. but you know can uh, an expecting person get great prenatal care depending on their zip code no <laughs> so right. it's like what are our priorities and I think that's like one of the major okay. questions I ask yeah I guess I guess that's I guess some people could consider our healthcare system to be good because they ha- they don't have prior- <laughs> the priorities to help certain uh, like demographic financial economic you know mm-hmm. like Oh, yeah, I'm glad you bring up priorities. That's that's messed up. That's severely depressing. Um I know, but- and I I I think like any discussion <laughs> around healthcare can be so sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Like, but there's like so many amazing people doing incredible work. Um and so like I think that like gets a lot of us through. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess, like you said in the beginning, like we we've got to try to have some hope that there's going to be reform coming up, trucking along, um, like and so you talk about that Cuba utilizes maternity homes that are community based, which is the coolest thing I've ever read, uh, to provide comprehensive care for women with high risk pregnancies, like it's preventative. It seems like everything is is is, um in order to yeah prevent problems like they foresee the issues that's what i mean to say and the success of this program shows through their maternal mortality rate of 39 out of 100,000 live births and infant mortality rate of 4.1 out of 1,000 births which is like pretty freaking great in comparison to other countries correct absolutely like surrounding countries in comparable um economic com- like mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah no yeah totally it's like shocking and that's why i think like, the global community sees it as, like, this paradox. Like, how can this country, with its resources, mm-hmm. do this? I, I think it comes down to ideology. Like, health is mm-hmm. a right, and it's recognized, and they do everything they can to um, maintain that. Right. Yeah. The, uh, I don't want to get – I don't want to get sad again. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you you end your paper uh, with more questions and statements, which I actually really love, um, like because it seems like the paper is, is talking about policies that are up for discussion, things that haven't happened yet, things that might happen. And the questions that you have are um, who is still at the margins of these policies? Like we talked about undocumented Americans. Um, can we as a society prioritize constituents rather than private and company interests? Can we accept health as a fundamental human right? What can we learn from Cuba's model, which provides important health rights and policy lessons? Um, Upon reading your paper again, did you have any new thoughts that you wanted to share? And I also want to know um, why this was one of your favorite papers. Great questions. 
um yeah i mean i think like a lot of us are thinking like well what like how can we change the minds of people who are against these policies that we know will help and so i think there's a lot of talk about like the framework of communication of these things like how do you change someone's mind like how do you um and i think that a lot of this is through the power of power of storytelling um and so i I, yeah for sure Um, what do you mean like sharing people's stories of um navigating our healthcare system oh i think like literally individual stories you think mm-hmm. people absolutely huh. mm-hmm. pathos yeah. yeah and like i think like you know i this is like way back but like uh you know i knew patrick through theater and i like the arts have consistently been like a part oh. of my life like and i know we just talked for like so long about healthcare, but like i really maintain this like idea of like humanities and like medical humanities and um oh uh kind of like this idea of like the power of storytelling particularly within medicine is so powerful and i think that can totally extend to policy um in regards to healthcare reform that's so yeah like sort of like what you talked about that like experiential and and seeing things with your own eyes is is also important like like as we look at statistics all day and everything just listening to people's individual stories Oh, that's such an... I think that's a really nice note to end on, actually. Um, do you have any uh, resources or, or things that you think would be nice to share for the listeners? If not, that's totally, totally cool. You know, I would just, you know, tell listeners, like, if you're interested in this topic, like, just keep up with the news mm-hmm. and see what you can do. News, yeah. yeah, and see what you can do with your um, with your legislators because they're the ones who have the power to change this. Um, so keep on keep emailing calling doing whatever you can to uh share your opinion this podcast is produced by hickory playground founded by dylan tashton robert fuller and jordan maycant jordan is also our audio editor compositions are by lucky Sarudi. logos designed by morgan honeycutt my assistant in research is john morgan stern and our digital marketing specialist is simone elhart thank you so much for listening